Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Adventurous Investor in Conversation. In this episode, we catch up with Craig Martin from Dynam Capital, who run the Vietnam Holdings Fund, which is a London-listed investment trust that invests in Vietnamese equities. As you can imagine, it's been a volatile few years for Vietnamese equities. They've been up, they've been down, they're looking more positive to 2023. But it's interesting catching up with Craig because we talk a bit about Vietnam's relationship with China, those party-to-party relationships, the relationship with South Korea and Taiwan, what's going on in the Vietnamese economy, the fact that it's so young, a lot of young people in Vietnam with massive urbanization to come, and the very low valuations on Vietnamese equities. I think we talk about something like seven and a half times earnings, so that's cheap. Anyway, it's a really interesting conversation with Craig Martin. After this quick musical break, he's coming up next. Craig, um, tell me a bit about your fund. Well, we're uh, an investment fund focused purely on Vietnam. Um, we're listed on the main board of the London Stock Exchange, so very easy uh, to, to trade into. We're a very nimble fund. We're one of three funds focused on Vietnam that you can buy on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, we're the nimblest, and that's led to pretty good performance over the last few years. So we run a very concentrated portfolio of Vietnamese equities, 20 to 25 names. And we've got a very uh, authentic and committed approach to doing simple things well. Uh, And we're uh, a strong adherent of good ESG, not because that's popular, but it uh, delivers good results and helps us sift uh, the great from from the good and and the good from the bad in, in Vietnam. So we're on the ground in Vietnam. All we do is Vietnamese equities, and we've had strong performance over many years. And how do you, where do you, because some of your, your, your peers, as you said, there's really only three funds that matter. Some of them are more private, some have more private equity, some are public equities. Where do you fit in that schema of things? Do you, are you all, is it all quoted listed stocks? So in our portfolio at the moment, it's all quoted listed stocks. We do have the ability uh, in the fund documents that we can do pre-IPO if we think a company is going to list in a meaningful way in a short period of time. But to be honest, there haven't been many IPOs in Vietnam uh, over the yeah. last three, four years. So our portfolio today is all good quality listed companies. Um, as you say, there are three uh, funds. We're, we're the smallest, but that gives us great advantage in terms of our nimbleness. Uh, we can move into uh, companies anywhere on the, the size scale from the small companies, the medium to the large companies and build a high conviction uh, portfolio around those listed names. Some of the other funds, I say, are much bigger. Uh, perhaps that means that they're less nimble, and some of the others also have a lot more private, um, yeah. quasi-private stocks. But we're, we're all 100% uh, publicly listed companies at the moment. And tell me, what are the, you've got quite a concentrated portfolio. Is it, quite, is it more large cap, big cap? What, what are the kind of key sectors? I'm, I'm guessing consumer might be a big sector. I may be wrong. Um, what, what, just give me a kind of quick pan portrait of the, the, the portfolio profile. Yes, we're both top-down and bottom-up. So the, the top-down attraction of Vietnam is, as you say, very much moving towards a new emerging consumer. So consumer stocks, consumer spending. And for us, that's playing on the increasing per capita GDP. It's gone up four times in the 20-odd years that Vietnam's had a, had a stock market. So that's a very important part of the investable universe and, and a key part of our portfolio. 
Vietnam's also um, on a journey towards becoming uh, a, a, an industrialized nation uh, and a modern manufacturing base. And you'll know that Vietnam is very attractive as a, as a, a destination for foreign manufacturers to locate their plants to. So for us, we see that macro trend, but it's very hard to buy into the individual components of the supply chain. So we like to buy into the, what we call the, the enablers, the business-to-business -business companies. That could be port operators, shipping, transportation, logistics type company, and, and digitalization as well in that. And then lastly, there's probably, in terms of the big theme, uh, there's an urbanization push yep. in Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam's urbanization is less than 40%. That's where, you know, yeah, where Europe was at the end of the Second World War. So it's quite a long runway of, of growth. And for that is in normal times uh, would lead us to be looking at a number of property developers. We do have some in the portfolio, but we're a little bit cautious. Uh, that sector's uh, quite a tough sector at the moment in Vietnam. And then I would say that's all underpinned by an emerging uh, banking sector as the people become wealthier as the companies are trading internationally, Vietnam's very much an open economy, 200% you know, of its GDP uh, in export and, and import. So uh, there's a growing banking sector. Uh, the Vietnamese population, which is 100 million people, is largely underbanked. You know, more than half of them don't have a bank account. So we see right. that that's a strong, uh, that's, there's also a big runway in the financial services. So it's broadly kind of top-down driven by those themes. And then when we're looking bottom-up, we're trying to find great companies, uh, I say not complicated businesses. We're looking for good earnings growth of kind of 20% plus per annum at reasonable valuations. And our portfolio forward price earnings for 23 is about seven and a half times our, uh, PE. So seven, not seven and a half, not 17. Yeah, so, no, seven and a half. So that's quite good value. Um, the stocks have, have come off a long way over the last um, 12 months or so. Perhaps we can touch on that. And, and so we see there's good value and good growth. And by building a concentrated portfolio, our team on the ground really get to know these businesses very well. We're size agnostic, so we can invest in small, medium, and large cap. Um, today, our portfolio is probably about 70% large cap. That's companies above a, a billion dollars of market value or market cap in Vietnam. But some of those companies we bought when they were much smaller, when they were tiddlers. So one of them uh, we bought when it was about $100 million in market cap. It's been compounding its earnings by 25% per annum over a decade. So that's now north of a billion dollars. So it's gone small cap to large cap. So we're, we're agnostic, really, to size. We're looking for quality. And we are also looking for businesses that are genuinely able to do more on ESG. Um, and we've been a, a committed, signed-up member of the United Nations principles of responsible investing for well over a decade. And we've used that as a tool to filter out the opportunity set in Vietnam, which is very large. Vietnam's got 1,600 public companies. And they've got a portfolio of 25. So we've got to do a lot of work to kind of filter out uh, and select um, the great from the good uh, and avoid the bad. So look, we'll talk a bit about Vietnam and its own kind of national characteristics in a second. But what's been happening to the market? So how how's the fund and generally Vietnamese equities done over the last three or four years? Probably since what before just before COVID till now. Um, I, I'm, from my limited reading, it seemed to have a good COVID, and then yep. it had a bit of a terrible post COVID with I think real estate <laughs> problems, and then it's sort of bouncing back in. What's been happening over the last few years with, with Vietnamese equities? 
Well, as you say, if anyone could have had a good COVID, Vietnam did in terms of the yeah. macro sense, but also during the equity market. So in 2021, um, our fund was the top performing fund in Vietnam and the top of, one of the top three performing funds in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, and that was really driven off a big surge in equity values in Vietnam that was driven by the rise of the retail investor. Right. The stock market in Vietnam is still very young. It's 20 years old. And in the last few years, there's been a great push on digitalization. There, for a population of 100 million people, there are 150 million SIM cards registered. So one right. and a half smartphones, per, one and a half phones per person. Most of those phones are smartphones. People are very digitally connected and digitally savvy. And so partly as a, as a consequence of, of COVID, people were able and encouraged to use their devices to uh, access financial services, but also to open stock trading accounts. And so um, there was a massive increase in the number of retail investors, uh, you know, three, four million in the last couple of years, two million in the last year or so. So that domestic investor base really drove the market very high and fast in 2021. And we did brilliantly. We outperformed the index uh, by a country mile. And uh, I say we're up uh, more than uh, 63% in terms of NAV, our share price was up about 80%. Um, and then in 22, actually Vietnam came out of COVID well, quite quickly. And first uh, weeks of uh, 22, the stock market was uh, printing very good returns and uh, everything was looking great until uh, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine um, and global mood kind of soured. And those domestic investors took a little bit of fright globally about right. what's happening. Okay. Um, and then domestic issues, particularly related to real estate and also um, consequences of perhaps of a market running hot too quickly, uh, where the regulations are trying to catch up a little bit. Uh, there are a couple of bad eggs or bad actors uh, in the stock market. Uh, and a couple of entrepreneurs during the course of the year got um, uh, told off and put in jail. And the, even the head of the stock market had to uh, step down because um, the markets were running quickly and there was failure to oversight um, a couple of companies where perhaps there was market abuse going on. So that kind of landed around the middle of the year. Um, and so the equity market was uh, weak. And then towards the end of last year, um, there were a couple of things that happened. One was uh, further weakness in uh, the real estate market and also uh, a tightening of credit in the bond market. So not directly linked into the equity market, uh, but, you know, animal spirits and, and, and fear and concern amongst these domestic investors that account for about 90 percent of the of the daily volume in Vietnam. About 90 percent. Yeah, it's a big number. So um, that really saw a lot of indiscriminate selling and stocks came down to very uh, cheap, affordable levels and we were buying into the weakness. And then we've come into this year where we've actually seen the return of the foreign investors. Foreign investors, ironically, have really taken a back seat. So in the last couple of years, it's been the rise of the retail investor, the Vietnamese domestic investor. Um, and foreign money has actually been net flowing out of Vietnam as it has many emerging markets. Uh, but this year, that tide has turned. We've seen you know, a couple of hundred million dollars in January and last year, a billion dollars net inflow of foreign money. So I think that's partly attracted to the attractive valuations currently in the market. You know, good banks at one times price the book, and let's say our portfolio is seven and a half times 
PE. And then perhaps a pause and a wait and see from the domestic investors to see what's going to happen during the course of this year. There's a couple of regulatory issues people are waiting to see get cleared up around the bond market. So it's, again, it's not the equity market, but um, it, it does affect retail investors. So the mood has been uh, impacted. But Vietnam is still a frontier market. It's the largest yeah, frontier the market. Every, everybody yeah. thinks it's an emerging market, but it isn't, is it? Uh, technically, it's a frontier market. Well, that's right. It, it, the characteristics in terms of its population growth, its strong levels of, uh, of GDP growth, you know, averaging 6.5% per year over 30 years, um, and its uh, population now, capita GDP, 4000 going up to $4,500. So it's coming into this kind of middle-income Besides, it's got the macro characteristics of, a, of an emerging market. But per MSCI and the people that create the indices, it's still a frontier market, um, in part because it still has some foreign ownership issues. And there are some restrictions that perhaps limit some of the free float in some of the index constituents. And that's one of the measures that MSCI use. And so Vietnam is, and it will be for some time, still a frontier market but it punches above its weight. As yeah. an equity market, um, it has you know, delivered over 10 years. Our funds delivered about 14% return. I think it's a, an interesting uh, equity market. It's, it's a, a macro, it's quite strong, and now it's attracting a lot of global interest. How do you, even though it's a frontier market, there's a kind of continuum within emerging markets between kind of India at one end, which is quite highly priced, um, and none of us need to explain what India's obvious attractions are. Um, and then you've probably got at the other end, you've got somewhere like China, which dominates the EM markets, but is actually quite cheap. You know, it's quite value oriented. You know, you, you, you might be what, seven and a half times P. I imagine quite a lot of Chinese companies might be less than that. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then in between, you've got all sorts of countries with different kind of characteristics. When is it, although it's a frontier market, where, where does Vietnam sort of fit in that spectrum? It's, it's very interesting. So Vietnam is geographically in Southeast Asia. It's got a lot of characteristics of Northeast Asia. It's had a lot of investment from South Koreans and the Japanese and the Taiwanese. And the characteristic of the people is quite Confucian thinking. It's quite North Asian in many ways. So it's kind of got the industrial prospects of a South Korea or potentially a, tai a Taiwan. Uh, and yet it's still it's got some of the kind of Southeast Asian characteristics of Thailand kind of 15 yeah. years ago in terms of the growing yeah. consumerism, and yeah. the growth in uh, um, shopping malls and transportation. It's still got the perhaps the uh, traffic jams to go through that Thailand went through in the 1990s. So it's, I'd say it's an amalgam in terms of the macro story and the runway. It's probably closer to uh, a Taiwan or a South Korea. Yeah. You know, 20 yeah. odd years ago. Yeah, um, it makes sense. But in terms of, a, of an equity market, it's probably close to Thailand. Thailand's the most liquid um, yeah. market in Southeast Asia with about you know, $2 billion a day of trade volume. Um, at its peak um, in 2021, Vietnam was about $1.5 billion, So it's catching up. It's now somewhere between half a billion and a billion dollars a day. Um, and so it's kind of a very interesting amalgam. Many Thai investors many Thai corporates look to Vietnam as their growth engine. They've got okay. a, an aging population in Thailand, a maturing market, 
where they look for growth actually is Vietnam. So Vietnam's getting a lot of the Thai retail companies, the Thai uh, business-to-business companies coming in, the manufacturers coming in, as well as getting the North Asian. So it's, it's a very interesting crossing point between you know, where Southeast Asia meets Northeast Asia. And quite literally, obviously, it has a border with China. So it, it's, it's connected in many ways to the pulsating heart of Asia. Now, you mentioned China. We can't not have a conversation which doesn't include China in, in the chat. Um, I mean, yeah, the big story that's out there, of course, is lots of people are concerned about China for all the reasons that you and I both know. Um, and then there's lots of talk about this kind of reshoring or decoupling or whatever term you want to use. And, and you, you quite often see articles, you know, about, I don't know, Apple trying to move some of its factories out of um, out of China into India. You hear about, I know that I think the South Koreans, as you said, are big investors. I think Samsung's big investor in, yeah. in Vietnam. Um, is, that, is that all just hype from the media or on the ground? Are you picking that up in terms of the supply chain? Is, is, it, is it coming out of China into Vietnam? It's certainly coming into Vietnam. We've seen record levels of foreign direct investment, you know, $20, $30 billion a year. A lot of that is for manufacturing for export. So Vietnam, on its own merit, has positioned itself as a great trading nation, has 15 bilateral and multilateral trade agreements. So it's a, a good place to manufacture and then has been a beneficiary of this kind of US versus China that's been going on probably since 2017, 2018. So when the US-China relationship started to deteriorate and Trump's tweeting uh, tirades, that um, I think woke a number of people up to look at Vietnam as a China plus one, a China alternative for manufacturing. The South Koreans have been doing it for many years. That then got accelerated through COVID where China was facing kind of factory lockdowns. and Vietnam emerged strongly. And I think over the last you know, months, and we don't want to get involved in the geopolitics, but it, it's clear that you know, the relationship between China and the US is, is not great. And so manufacturers can either reshore back to America, but not everyone can do that, unless yeah. you want to pay a lot of money for your Nike trainers, your Adidas trainers, and your uh, Apple Air- AirPods. So the term, I think, friend shoring is becoming more relevant. So Vietnam is a friendly shore. It's a friend to all, it's a servant to none. So it exports and trades a lot with China, exports and trades a lot with the US and with the EU and and even the UK, and has been able to attract uh, foreign direct investment from many countries. So the kind of China plus one is real. The uh, reshoring, of course, happens, and we're seeing stuff move, say, to Mexico and places like that. But friendshoring, I think, is, is a key kind of halfway house. Vietnam won't get it all. I mean, Apple, um, I think, are moving a lot of uh, investments into Vietnam. And I think Vietnam's going to make half of the AirPods and the, uh, the, uh, uh, and the MacBooks. But you know, Apple does so much in China, can't bring all of it to Vietnam. It'll probably take some to India and, and elsewhere. But companies like Intel, big U.S. company have been doubling down on what they do in Vietnam in semiconductor assembly and test. You mentioned Samsung. It's a massive investment investor in Vietnam. Um, and they're doubling down in terms of both their direct manufacturing, but then there's this kind of ecosystem of sub-assemblies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Vietnam's been trying to attract those through its industrial parks, 
and uh, for manufacturers to take advantage of you know, good trade relations with, with many other countries. And over time, you know, a, a, a growing infrastructure suited for that transportation. And then you add on to Vietnam's location, it's, you know, it's very close to China, it's very close to North Asia, close to Southeast Asia. So it's reasonably well positioned, relatively low labor costs. So it's, it's an attractive, friendly place for people wanting to perhaps diversify some, or in fact, for some companies, all of their manufacturing out of China. Um, no one wants to get caught up in uh, you know, uh, trade disputes or, yeah. or, or be it, you know, sanctions. Geopolitical, geopolitical rivalry, yeah. yeah. When, when those things. So it's, it's a good place to kind of hedge one's bet. So Taiwan, case in point, has been a big investor, both in terms of the physical capital markets in Vietnam, in terms of uh, foreign direct investment, but also in terms of the stock markets as well. What are the risks? What are the um, what are the what are the risks to this scenario? I mean, presumably Vietnam, if the the US China thing spirals out of control, it's it's going to find difficult. It's going to find it very difficult to stay completely out of that. Yeah, because it's it's big neighbour to the north is China, so it, it's you know it's, there's geopolitical risk. There obviously a, there must be corporate governance risk because it is still a society run by um, the Vietnamese Communist Party, and as we've already intimated, there's been all sorts of corruption issues just like that in China. What are the risks to, to, to Vietnam moving forward at the moment, do you think? If you had to identify three risks, what would they be? Well, it's um, a great question. I think the, if you take the long-term view, the runway that Vietnam has is very ample in terms of its consumer growth, industrialization, and the urbanization growth. Um, so if you're a patient investor and you're able to enjoy that three, five, ten-year journey, you will be handsomely rewarded. I think the risks are often at the shorter term, yeah. which is where uh, economies are going through adjustment. So Vietnam's capital markets have gone through a massive period of growth, perhaps with regulation um, not catching up as quickly as that. And then last year, uh, I think the government wanted to tighten up uh, gaps in regulation in the bond market. It wanted to stamp out corruption and came in with you know, a heavy stick. And I think that scared off some of the domestic investors. Uh, and so last year we saw the market down close to 40%, our fund down 30%. So one of the risks is volatility. So if you're looking at you know, a quick return in somewhere like Vietnam, it's risky because it can be volatile. So we were up you know, 65% one year and down 30% the next year. But if you take a, a, a say a mid-term view, you're a, a long-term investor, three to five years, you're attracted by that the Vietnam story in terms of its its growth uh, and uh, the opportunity set on many fronts, the domestic, the industrial, and the urbanisation, then you can ride out those kind of periods of volatility. So there's a, a kind of timing risk uh, around that. Yeah. Um, I think there's the geopolitical unknowns, which you've alluded to, that in many ways Vietnam. Uh, has been a, a winner and can continue to yeah. be a winner uh, to that. But that, there's always a lot of noise uh, around that. So Vietnam has managed its relationships with China very well. It's managed its relationships with the U.S. very well. And I think the risk is that they get pulled into one side. Yeah. Um, I think the Vietnamese are very clever, very pragmatic, um, and they're able to kind of you know, position themselves as, say, as a friend to all. They've got a trump card. <laughs> Sorry, Trump card's probably an inappropriate way. Yeah. They've got a, a special card, 
<laughs> yeah, which is they've got a very interesting relationship with China because I think, as you mentioned, they're both communist countries. So Vietnam can have a government-to-government relationship with China, and they can argue over the, the East Asian Sea that Vietnam views it as, yep. or the South China Sea that the Chinese view it as. But then they can call party to party. And so they've got a line of communication on that way, which is very few countries have that. Um, yeah. It's, you know, two heads butting together. So Vietnam has that ability. I think the other thing that they need to manage is, you know, they're a very sweet spot in terms of their demographic. They've got a, a large, relatively you know, young, hardworking population. But that won't always be the, the way. In, in 20, 30 years, actually, the birth rate starts to um, uh, decline. And so That's Vietnam right. needs yeah, yeah, so it needs to, to modernize. What the government has said is, look, you know, we want to be both a modern industrial country, we want to be um, a, a high, middle high income country, and we want to be a key part of the, the world supply chain. So it's quite an agenda uh, for the government to, to, to manage, and it will take time. I think one of the other risks is that, you know, the infrastructure uh, can lag. When infrastructure gets invested, we see a multiplier effect. Uh, but we saw, you know, in Thailand in the 1990s, traffic and traffic jams yeah. uh, were a drag on economic growth to a certain extent. Um, Vietnam, you know, not many cars, lots of motorbikes, but there will be more cars and, and hopefully there'll be more uh, electric vehicles as well. Um, so the government has identified the need to accelerate the domestic pace of domestic infrastructure investing, uh, roads, bridges uh, and other key elements in airports and and a risk is that those you know get delayed yep. it's not just vietnam you know in the uk big infrastructure projects often get delayed so you know that there's that, again that's why i think you need to take a view that actually vietnam is on an upwards trajectory it's not necessarily always going to be smooth um it's got all the ingredients it's got this hard-working population it's got plenty of runway that it can emulate a taiwan or it can emulate a south korea um, but I think you've got to look at it as an opportunity uh, through a lens of you know, three to five years rather than, oh, I'll get in and I'll get out in six months. Um, uh, one of the things that's occurred in China, and just one of this true in Vietnam, is, is that there's this residual feeling that with the, over the last couple of years that people are not entirely convinced that the Chinese Communist Party likes capitalism. Yeah. That it, it, and, you know, they've got very big state-owned enterprises. I think I saw some statistic now where, there's state-owned enterprises in China now which are listed and are actually much bigger than the privately owned, pure privately owned companies. And, they, you know, and, and President Xi's been very clear about that, you know, that, that move. And that's left this residual feeling, like, like Vietnam's got a very big private investor population, lots of Chinese love investing in the stock market. But there's this residual feeling that can you entire, entirely trust China to stay the course with a kind of proper market-based economy? Will it kind of revert to, to its kind of its instincts, which are, let's be honest, it's in the title of the party, communist? Um, is that true for Vietnam as well? I don't think so. I think the Vietnamese government has always welcomed the growth in the capital markets, and in fact, you know, wants to see Vietnam become part of the emerging market. They see that that provides them benefits, but it just takes time to iron out the kind of restrictions and foreign ownership limits that have prevented that happening. They view the capital markets as a way, as an alternative means of co-financing infrastructure. So they see that as a very positive 
step. Um, it's a country of 100 million people, 100 million entrepreneurs. There's, there's a very busyness and a focus and a hard work, and the Vietnamese want to be better than their parents. They want their kids to be better off than they are. Um, so it would not be a popular move by anyone to kind of roll back that, and I think it's a very unlikely move. I think uh, the Vietnamese authorities want to see growth, but not at any cost. And I think, to, to be honest, that's why the market took a bit of a hit last year was that they wanted to tighten the regulation, which I think longer term is good. Um, but obviously, when you've got to inflict some punishment on some bad actors, um, it set people thinking, well, who's next? You know, what company's going to get hit yeah, next? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, there was fear there. But it wasn't fear of, it wasn't the government taking action against the capital markets. The other way, it was trying to protect investors. They were trying to protect these um, you know, millions of new investors from getting caught by poorly put together bond offerings. Um, and so the government's intent is to have a healthy growth in the capital market. So it's very much a capitalist economic system, but a small C conservative, uh, small C communist political uh, system, which has worked for Vietnam. And they've managed to you know, see this kind of multi-decade growth in GDP uh, and increase in the wealth of the people. And even just in the last 20 years, you know, the stock market has gone from nothing to you know, $300 billion, um, and from three companies 20 years ago to 1,600 public companies. So they're very much keen on seeing the capital markets develop, but growth, but not at any cost. They, they will want to tighten the regulation. Craig, one last question. So just looking forward now, what, what's your discounts at the moment? So um, it varies. I think today we're about 14%, uh, okay. which probably, you know, the, the board keep a very close eye on that. They're very active in terms of buybacks and, and addressing that. Um, it's been low single digit and it's, it's been as wide as about 15%. So today it's about 14%. Okay. Um, yeah. And looking to the looking to the future, have you been making any switches in the portfolio in the last couple of months, or are you looking at any sort of switches or sectors that you're growing more enthusiastic about? What was in, in the book? Is there likely to be? Has there been any recent change? And is there likely to be any more changes in the next? Are you finding some some sectors more attractive? Well, one of the benefits of being nimble is that we can um, we can tilt uh, the portfolio. Uh, we've got our long-term view, and we're very much driven by finding great companies. But we can we can add to positions when they become cheap. So we've been adding to, you know, some of our banks selectively, some of our retail companies. Um, we have a fantastic number one business, FPT, which is a digital champion, which we had added to last year. We have uh, reduced our exposure to some of the real estate companies. Now right. that's kind of tactical because we see, you know, longer term. There's tremendous value opportunity in the growing uh, development of, of land and property, but it's, it's a, a difficult market at the moment. So we, had, we, we saw some of this coming through higher interest rates, and so we kind of reduced, went a little bit underweight on that. But we're um, overweighting some of the um, industrials. Uh, we like the industrial real estate story in Vietnam, and which plays that manufacturing for export. And yep. we like the retail and the consumer focus. And we think digitalization is here to stay. So, you know, we're constantly looking for great opportunities in uh, digital enablers uh, as well in, in Vietnam. It's a very interesting year for us this year. Every five years we have a continuation vote. We have a continuation vote for the fund back end of this year. And 
you know, we're, we're pleased that we've you know, delivered uh, great returns uh, for our uh, investors and hope to do so for many years to come. So if we're given that opportunity uh, at the back end of this year, we'll you know, continue to uh, be building uh, a, a terrific portfolio of exciting Vietnamese companies at reasonable valuations, but with great growth prospects. Lovely. Thank you very much, Craig. My pleasure.